from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. Sometimes I wonder if we are at peak podcast. There are so many out there, more than half a million, I just learned. And it being an audio medium, an awful lot of those are about music. Podcasts about alternative rock, uh, Broadway music, hip-hop, medieval music. There are interview music podcasts, review podcasts. Uh, There is even, I'm told, a true crime music podcast. But... This interested me, a deep dive into the music of ISIS. They call them Nasheeds, that's the English term, or Anashid, that's the Arabic, which is a bit awkward given those are also the names for any Islamic chant, for songs produced by some of the Muslim world's biggest stars. But the Islamic State has now released over 70 of their own. At first, all these songs were in Arabic. This is the most famous, My Ummah Dawn Has Appeared. That is the British journalist Alex Marshall in the first episode of the long-awaited new season of the terrific music documentary series Pitch. Marshall is investigating how ISIS uses these catchy a cappella songs to recruit and radicalize and inspire their followers and would-be followers, even though ISIS and other Islamic fundamentalists prohibit music. The very meaning of Nasheed meant a religious song, for example, in praise of the prophet or in praise of God. This is Bainam Saeed. He works for German intelligence, something he's surprisingly able to admit in public. And he's the author of the world's only book on jihadi music. Pitch is the creation of Alex Kappelman and Whitney Jones, who joins me to talk about this new season. And full disclosure, Whitney has been moonlighting for us, Engineering Studio 360, the last few months as he was awaiting for this new burst of Pitch episodes to appear. Thank you, Whitney. And so give our listeners the, I guess I have to say this, elevator pitch for Pitch. What, what is it? Pitch is a nine-part audio documentary series about music. It's not reviews. It's not here's a person doing a project. It's uh, they're, they're documentaries that explore the power music has in our lives as individuals and in shaping societies. To your point, it, they are obviously uh, reporting and production-rich documentaries. It's, just, it's not just a couple of guys talking about songs. Yes, we try to avoid that. The new season is nine episodes, but you've done, what, 20, 15, 24? I think we did 19 previously in the, yeah. sort of the previous version of the show. Uh, and the previous version of the show, uh, the last ones were th- three years ago. And now this is an Audible production. So have you hit the yeah. big league? What 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 does Audible bring to this uh, equation that you guys didn't have back in the day? Yeah. Uh, when Alex Kappelman and I started this project, it was we met up in a dive bar one night and just we just met and we were talking about ideas and we both kind of had the same idea for this show that sort of dove deep into music and did music stories. Like I said, we didn't know each other. We didn't know if we liked working together. So we just decided we're going to make like four episodes and put them out. And it was fun and we liked doing it. And so we just kept doing it. We both had jobs at the time. I was working at The Moth. Uh, Alex was working at WNYC and uh, we had nights and weekends to work on this thing. And, uh, paid all of our own costs and sort of fitted in where we could. Suddenly, being with Audible, we had resources to go and commission a bunch of work from people that we wanted to work with around the world. Like this guy, Alex Alex Marshall. Marshall. Yeah, we were able to send him to to France and and have him do original reporting on the ground there. We're we're better now, and so our production level went up. And yeah, it just allowed us to do things that we we couldn't really have imagined a couple years ago when we were just doing it 
in our free time. I, I'm sort of surprised this hadn't been a public radio show before you guys dreamed it up in the in the in the podcast era. We saw shows like Planet Money. We saw shows like 99% Invisible that were about the world generally, but took a very specific lens to view it through, either economics or uh, design. And our original idea back in, I guess it would have been like 2013, was let's do a show like that, but for music. Yeah. So this new season kicks off with an episode called The Music of Isis that we heard a bit of. Let's listen to a little bit more of that. On 14th March 2015, a song appeared online. <laughs> If you randomly came across it like I did that day, you might have thought it was some French kids trying to prove they could really sing. The Parisian Bieber, perhaps, just throwing themselves out there on YouTube a cappella, hoping to get a record deal. And his song, it is, it, it's catchy. But if you listen to the lyrics, you'd quickly realise that this was about as far away from a pop song as you can get. We need to enter France. It's time for it to be humiliated. We want to see suffering and death by the thousand. Um, Alex Marshall goes on to connect that particular song with the, the terrorist attacks in 2015 in Paris that killed 130 people, most of them at that rock concert at the Bataclan Theater. This is a great piece and, and kind of typical of what you're doing. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not an outlier from the rest of Pitch. Are you going more for an audience of people who are interested in music or interested in the news? Or is, is that the Venn diagram and where that overlaps, that's Pitch's sweet spot? Both Alex and I are interested in a lot of different things, music being, being a major one but also news and, and world events. And, and I think something that we bring to the series is, is sort of taking all of our different interests and, and cramming them and smashing them against each other and see what, seeing what comes out of that. And with this Music of ISIS piece, first of all, had Alex Marshall reported around the jihadi world before? Was that something he knew? Alex had put out a book about national anthems that took him around to, I think, 13 or 14 different countries around the world. Uh, and he, he wrote about all these different national anthems and how they came about. And in the process of that, he came across one of these songs that was, for lack of, of, of a better term, than the national anthem for, for ISIS. And so For the caliphate. Yeah, yeah. And so we'd been thinking about places where music is banned. And, and we, look, we, we were looking at, at ISIS and how they deal with music anyway. And sort yeah. of independent of that... Uh, including banning it. Yeah, 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 indeed. Right around that same time, Alex got connected with us through some through another journalist we knew out there, and he pitched us this piece, and it was kind of it fit into something that we were already kind of interested in and, and looking to go towards. And he obviously had the background to to be able to report it and, yeah. and do a great job on it. And did you have any concern about you know giving airtime to propaganda music made to propagandize terror? Yeah, absolutely. Partly just being responsible journalists and also uh, Audible's legal team, we had a lot of discussions about, like, how much should we play? Uh, what is the context we're bringing to these? And in every case, it, we, we weren't using these as sound effects to be provocative, but we felt like it was important in every case to, to put the sound of the thing in people's ears so they can understand how catchy it is, the, the way that they're using it, and then bring the proper context to it. Yeah, we, we were very careful not to not to be, like, to sort of take like a hipster ironic view of like, check out these crazy songs that are celebrating violence at, at the Bataclan. And, and that was never our intention. I'm pretty happy with the context we were able to, to bring to these pieces. Although what we hear in this piece and what we just heard is not an 
English. It's not all in Arabic. It's in all kinds of languages. That's the part of the genius of ISIS when they were being geniuses in terms of marketing is that they recruit people from that speak all kinds of languages. One of the innovations that that ISIS made with these songs is they put them out in a dozen different languages. Right, you say that. And so, yeah. and they and so it, French, they're not else, just so. in Arabic. The main ones we highlight in the piece are, are French, and they're made by these right, two French right, brothers. Right, right. There's a section at the very end of the piece where um, Alex is talking with a member of the Muslim Student Association in France, and she's hearing these songs for the first time. She's not gone out and, and, and heard these songs in, in French, these ISIS songs in French before. And she makes a comment like, it's a genre that she's grown up with as, as basically a religious song, Having nothing to do with terrorism, Wait, having nothing to do with violence. The they, they were this, these religious yeah. dirges before they became It, it, would, it would be like somebody took jihadists. your favorite genre as a kid growing up, and suddenly yes. they're, they're using it in a way to propagandize. Right. And, and she's, she says basically, like, you, you can't do that. You can't just take this thing that's my music and turn it into something yeah. violent and, and, and destructive. Right. And I, I think that's something where the piece is able to go beyond just like, oh, this is about a terrorist organization that puts music out. And, and connect with, like, if, if I were in this position, somebody took my favorite genre of music and suddenly is using it in this way right. to propagandize and radicalize, how would I feel about that? And yeah. It's, it's a question I think we can all ask yeah. ourselves. The show will resume in no time, but I did want to take this moment to suggest you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, feel free to write a review, which does help people discover the show. And now, back to the podcast. We've got another clip from another new episode called Blacklist about a very interesting uh, musician who was very popular in the 30s and 40s and 50s called Hazel Scott, whose career was derailed by McCarthyism. You know, she's oftentimes left out of the narrative of jazz because she did not do the traditional types of performances that everyone else did. You've got critics who are saying, well, this is not really jazz. You know, this is novelty entertainment. And, you know, she's not reflecting any substance in her music. Well, you see, when Martin King came, Dr. Martin Luther King came backstage in Philadelphia and said he wanted to meet me, he was going to divinity school then, nearby. And he told me that the first time he sat in a non-segregated audience in the South was at my concert, you see. And we talked, we became friends, and um, this is why he came to see me many times in Europe, and he would say, Hazel, come on, because there's a whole generation growing up that knows nothing about what you did. That was the music historian Tammy Kernodal, and then a clip of Hazel Scott uh, herself. I mean, I barely recognized the name when, when I heard the beginning of this piece. Uh, how did you come across her story and this relatively obscure, fascinating story? So I got interested in people who'd been blacklisted. When I, when I started looking into it, it, it was mainly the Hollywood folks that I'd, I'd heard about. Yeah. And, yeah. and so conveniently, there had been a list provided of, of people <laughs> yes, who, there was who a had blacklist. been blacklisted. And I thought, surely there's musicians somewhere on this list. And so I went through, and, and there was a ton of them. And I just started going through and, and researching the biographies of all these different people. And right near the end of the list was Hazel Scott. Her story is amazing. She grew up with jazz legends just in her house. They were friends of her mom, uh, Billie Holiday, uh, Art Tatum, Lester Young. These were people she was just around as a young kid and, and learned to play piano from. By her late teens, she's on Broadway, she's touring, she's in Hollywood films. 
later she marries Adam Clayton Powell Jr. He's a congressman. She she is the wife of a congressman. Not just and, that kind. I'm like like a, the, the black politician uh, in New York of his era in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, stuff she was doing on tour, both in the North and the South in the 1940s. She was demanding that all of her audiences be integrated. Yeah. And there were a couple shows where where they weren't. She came out and she left the stage and still got paid for it. That's the that's sort of the power she had as an artist at this time. She has a, a nationally syndicated television show at this time. Um, and then in the 50s. In the 50s. And then she appears on, on a blacklist. Uh, she tells her husband, I want to go talk to the committee and, and get my name cleared. Most, cleared for not yeah, being a yeah, 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 yeah. A week after she goes before HUAC, all the advertisers pull out of her show. Her show disappears from TV. Her touring dates start to dry up. She ends up going overseas and, and sort of is, is lost from sort of the American music scene. I was interested in... In this moment at HUAC and, uh-huh. and the effect that that had on the rest of her life, as opposed to the, the large sweep right, of, of right, her biography. Right, right. And so we really try to focus in on this this one moment. Um, HUAC, uh, the House and American Activities Committee, she, she appeared in, in 1950. And you recreate that in this episode with actors uh, because that wasn't recorded or why? Yeah, it wasn't recorded. There's transcripts from it, word for word transcripts of exactly right. what was said, but there was no audio from it. Right. And I, I, reading through this, I could hear it in my head. Yeah. And it was so vivid and, and the back and forth and, and, and you can you can see on the page people interrupting people and 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 getting more tense as things go on. And it was very dramatic just in reading it on, on the page and, and I I thought there has to be some way to bring this into people's ears. Right. Well let's listen to a little bit of how you did that. What I'm trying to get at, you say whoever said you were so listed were liars. In justification of the committee's action, I am told that your being so listed was justified by publications of the organizations themselves. Are you in a position to say that that is not true? Or if you were so listed, it was unauthorized? If I was so listed, it was unauthorized. Then you don't cast any reflections that this committee was lying. No, nor do I say the publishers of Counterattack are lying, but I say they have no right to print that. And you were saying that a simple little telephone call... Would have clarified it. Are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I am not now, never have been, have never entertained the idea, and never will become a member, which is something nobody has ever asked me. Mrs. Powell, the committee is grateful for your suggestions and glad to afford you this opportunity to make known your position. Thank you. The committee stands adjourned. That's from uh, your episode about Hazel Scott on pitch. You, because you're an audio maestro, you, you made that sound as though it's from early the early 1950s, right? Yeah, I, I, there's a bunch of clips on YouTube of of testimony from from those hearings, and so I just listened to a whole bunch of them and tried to approximate. There's the tape hiss in the background. There's a very narrow uh, EQ range, very like the low frequencies are dropped off, a lot of the higher frequencies are dropped off, and then it's all compressed and, and really like to the point of almost distortion a lot of times. Yeah. And so I just sort of took those things and tried to, I, I just A-beat it. I would, I would yeah. hear, listen to my own tape, go back and listen to the the footage from those hearings and, and just sort of try to approximate it the best I could. So it's fake news. Have, <laughs> have, have, uh, have, have you ever, with Pitch, done that kind of thing before of recreations? No, and it, it's not because we're necessarily opposed to it. Clearly it, it worked in this case, but it was just a case-by-case thing and, and we've never needed to to bring to life audio tape that we, that we didn't have. Right. Uh, your co-creator, uh, Alex Kaplan, uh, once said that you have this this knack, uncanny knack for finding interesting, obscure uh, stories. Assuming you agree with that, w- what is that knack about? I'm a pretty curious person. And, and when I 
when I start pulling on the thread of something that I don't know, I get really annoyed if I don't know all there is to know about it. Like like this piece, it, it started with with Hollywood blacklisting, uh-huh. and then there's like certainly there are musicians, and then there, there's Hazel Scott over here, and, and just like I want to know everything I, I I can find out about that, and so it. it I, I read Karen Chilton's biography. I, I went to the Jazz Institute at, at Rutgers University, and they pulled a giant file out. There's all these letters that uh, Hazel and Mary Lou Williams sent back and forth, and I, I read everything I could find on on this subject. I, I think that, that curiosity is the thing that, that drives me towards, oh, here's the thing I don't know. I need to find everything yeah. there is to know about that. You're eager to keep going down the rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah, and sometimes that, that results in a longer production cycle than, than I would like. Right. Um, there, there's a... St- Pretty strong emphasis on on uh, music from outside the United States. In addition to the ISIS uh, piece, uh, you have an episode about traditional French music, about songs sung in this Celtic, I guess, language, dialect, that a thousand people uh, alive today yeah, speak. Yeah, Cornish. And this other one called uh, Boy Don't Touch Me about uh, a carnival song that became core, central to this female empowerment movement in in Trinidad. Uh, We're going to play a clip from that, but if you can say anything more that listeners need to understand before they hear. In 2016, uh, the day after Carnival, there was a woman found uh, killed in a park uh, in Port of Spain, and she still had her Carnival outfit on. The mayor held a press conference and said, you know, we're going to investigate this thing, but also, like, was she drinking? And, like, if she's wearing this sort of thing, was she kind of making herself a target for, for being killed? And obviously that didn't sit very well with, with a lot of people. There's some of the women that Martine Powers, the reporter for this story, interviewed, decided they were going to have a protest and, and protest these comments that the mayor made. They figured a, a few dozen of their friends would show up, but hundreds and hundreds of people showed up for this protest. It got picked up in the papers. Within a couple of days, the mayor had resigned. And they hoped that this would lead to a larger conversation about sexism and, and harassment and abuse that happens around Carnival. Didn't necessarily happen that way right away. Uh, as, as Carnival was, was about to come up the next year, they faced these questions of, of, can you criticize parts of this event without criticizing Carnival, without criticizing Trinidad? And, and that's, I, I believe, where the clip picks up. Attila was struggling to figure out how to get that message across. And then, a few months before this year's carnival, she turned on the radio. And she heard this song. It's called Leave Me Alone. On the surface, it's a party anthem. It's about a woman who wants to go out and celebrate carnival and how she ignores the husband or boyfriend telling her that she needs to go home. That's Martine Powers. Uh, her episode is called Boy Don't Touch Me after that song. W- when did this get to your radar? My production partner, Alex Kappelman, was the one who produced this story with Martine. Um, I believe it was sometime early 2016. But before fall of 2017, thus before the Me Too Time's Up movement, right? Yes, yes. Sexual harassment abuse didn't didn't start in 2017. No, of course not. But you kind of lucked into it being even more timely. There were a lot of stories that we had started production on that the political ground or the the environment it was going to be released in totally shifted out from under us uh, while we were under production or, or after we'd, we'd finished production and, and we were waiting for the series to be released, yeah. which was an interesting thing to deal with. Certainly, I think with this piece, its relevance was there before Me Too and Time's Up. I, I think now it, it maybe resonates a bit, a bit more. 
I, I would also just say that both Alex and I are, are, are white men in our 30s, and uh, it was important for us to bring in other voices that could tell stories better than, than we could in, in certain cases. And right. I think this was a case certainly where uh, Martine did a great job of going out yeah. and reporting the story. When we when we first started sort of the process of figuring out what this new season was going to be, right. we we played a bunch of our old stuff for uh, musicians and music writers and and producers that we knew. We got similar feedback with a lot of the, with a lot of those people. Uh, one was like, we don't always need to be hearing from you and Alex. Fair enough. Yeah. There are other perspectives out there that that are not just ours uh, right. that allow us to go different places with the show than than we had before. And the Audible partnership presumably allowed that just from a financial. Point yeah, of we were able we were able to pay the the reporters that that we worked with, which was something that was always very important yeah. to us. And the other piece was, you know, there's a lot of those old stories that touch up on political issues, but maybe don't go all the way into it. And like, don't be afraid to do that. Uh-huh. And I feel like both of those, both of those things this season, we went out Good. consciously yes, and, and made an effort to work towards. Even though you decided to have yourself and Alex Less in pieces, you are in this other piece called The Politics of Listening. Talk about that, what, you were, what that is and what you were trying to do. So that, that started as a paper that I did for a conference called uh, Pop Conference out in Seattle, Washington. It's a, it's a gathering of uh, music writers and musicians and academics every year that sort of present what they're working on. Uh, in 2017, the the theme of the weekend was music and politics. And so I, I pitched a story the day before the, the election about basically looking at the last couple of weeks of the campaign and all of these artists who had appeared at Hillary Clinton rallies versus I think there was Kid, Kid Rock was the only was the only musician who appeared at, at a Trump rally. And that imbalance was interesting to me. And so I, I pitched this paper at this conference talking about that imbalance. And then obviously after the election, that sort of changed a couple of things. Um, maybe it's not super important how many musicians you have out, out campaigning with you. Uh, and so it became much more about this idea of like musicians put out songs with sometimes particular messages in them and audiences are under no obligation to hear those in the way that the, the musicians want. And so what does that mean for the relationship between musicians and, and artists? And in many cases cited in, in the piece, there are musicians who are, are more to the political left being enjoyed by listeners who are more to the political right. And it, I, I found it, that it interesting. Must, it, it, if you're of the political right and like music, it's going to happen. I, I, and I know people, conservatives, who just like, oh, I, listen, yeah, I don't care what Bruce Springsteen's politics are. I still like Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. This is you talking to Victoria Ruiz, uh, who is in the punk band called Downtown Boys. Do you ever think about uh, listeners who who disagree with your politics and what they might do when when confronted with your music or when they hear it? I am forced to think about listeners that disagree with our music. So um, we uh, we do not like the police. We think that the police are the foundation of why capitalism and white supremacy get to exist in the state that they do. And uh, we very much think that the police are not the answer and... and um, that's just something like so many people disagree with. And then like a lot of people just like don't like the music because it's talking about like power and it's talking about like white supremacy and access. And a lot of people just want a good time. They just like want to have fun and they don't want to think about these things. And so again, like being like, all right, well, I'm sorry that I can't give that to you, but also like we're living in a moment where no one, no one should really feel comfortable right now. You also uh, talk uh, in the episode to uh, a conservative uh, writer, columnist called Christian Schneider, who, who talks about liking bands uh, and going to shows where the, the politics of the musicians that they talk about from on stage or sing about 
aren't his, obviously. Let's listen to a little bit of that. It would be funny if, you know, you had some kind of fairness doctrine for uh, <laughs> for for rock music shows where, you know, some nerdy conservative would go up on stage and offer a counterpoint to, to whatever they're hearing. So um, I think, you know, even even those on the left are kind of turned off by, you know, being lectured. And so I think it's easier to get into the stuff that you can kind of, I mean, that that's the beauty of art is you can kind of read into it what you want, even if you know it kind of has a, has a viewpoint. Yeah, it's part of what you're saying, like, yeah, look, like, I like your guys' music, just let me interpret it how I want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that could be some of it, or or not interpret it at all, just kind of enjoy it the way it is. That episode could be, for my money, you know, a podcast in and of itself. I find I find that fascinating. You did a great job with it. Oh, thank you. So, you have this new uh, nine episodes out. Are you hard at work on the next nine, or what, what's going on now? So I've been I've been working at this this show called Studio Three Sixty, uh-huh. <laughs> and it's taken up too much of your time, has it? No. Uh, what's going to happen next with with pitch? I, I'm not, I'm not sure. We we just put out this series. Uh, we're sort of taking a minute to think about how the series went, and and hopefully there will be more episodes yeah. in the future. Yeah. Well, congratulations! It's great work, and I don't know anything else like it. And it's really just first class. So congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, Whitney Jones uh, will be engineering Studio 360 for just a little while longer this summer. And uh, Pitch is available now and will be forever at Audible. Thanks for listening. And you can subscribe to Studio 360 at iTunes or Overcast or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. 